not a nonny moose. Edmonton's dear football team gets a new name. This week, we found out more about public art and we'll tell you all about it on your Friday Percent for Art Power Hour. We'll also talk about a plan from the city to prevent chopping down trees and a mayoral candidate that's willingly chopping her signs at oblong angles. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 132, where that title will probably implicitly confirm in the Taproot Edmonton canon that this podcast is an omnivorous podcast. Uh, It's still a food pun. We do eat meat, just only one or two days a week. Isn't that the guidance these days? I heard that Biden wants to end all Alberta beef forever, so who knows these days. (laughs) On to the rapid fire. This week, Edmonton's spray parks reopened while council simultaneously decided to restore the park's maintenance budget to reduce spraying chemical herbicides. On the timing of the change, city administration said that none of the kids were named Herb, so crisis averted. Edmonton Mayor Don Iveson had to don a Winnipeg Jets jersey and donate to the opposing city's food bank after losing a bet with Mayor Bowman of the Manitoba City. Iveson, like the Oilers, is well prepped for loss and took it in stride, laughing as he posed with the jersey on social media. We at Speaking Municipally would also take this time to congratulate Winnipeg on their cultural gain here. Where previously the cultural linchpin was getting your bike stolen, Manitoba's capital now adds yelling at the TV when sports ball is on to their rich cultural fabric. The Edmonton region is finalizing its once-in-a-generation plan for the agricultural industry, crafting a policy that aims to preserve some of the province's highest quality farmlands for a population that is expected to double in the coming decades. At a future meeting of the Edmonton Metropolitan Region Board, two proposals are expected to address the need for food security in the Edmonton region. The first, a plan to preserve farmlands and protect some of Alberta's highest quality black soil. The second, a competing plan that simply proposes opening more franchise locations of Green Onion Cake Man. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. This episode is brought to you by the Edmonton Community Foundation. The ECF acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. You can start an endowment fund yourself or with a group, and once it reaches $10,000, it can start distributing funds. You should also check out the Well Endowed podcast from the ECF for stories about how those funds intersect with the community. You can learn more at ecfoundation.org. Those motorcycle sounds not brought to you by ECF, but by lackluster enforcement of noise bylaws. No doubt. (laughs) So last week, we talked about the percent for art, and we really dug into one bridge in Edmonton, the Grote Road Bridge, and why it didn't have any public art. But there's another bridge in Edmonton, the Walterdale Bridge, that we all talked about as this, you know, amazing piece of beauty and a nice cultural point that everyone can gather around, take all their Instagram, TikTok shots with. That bridge also doesn't have any public art. And you dug into that this week. Yeah, I've been looking further into public art because I think there's an interesting uh, story, an interesting thread to pull on here. So way back when, 2011 maybe, uh, it was announced that an artist by the name of Ken Lum had been commissioned to do the art for the Walterdale Bridge. And then in 2013, there was an update that was confirmed The artist was providing input on the various aspects of the aesthetics of the new bridge in addition to the art. The art that he was working on was supposed to be placed on the north and south riverbank area. So there'd be a piece on either end of the bridge, the idea being that you could cross from one to the other and they would kind of work in 
in tandem. People have asked about the art over the years. Of course, the bridge itself ended up being delayed and over budget and all those kinds of things. As recently as 2018, the Arts Council uh, had tweeted that, yes, there will be public art at the Walterdale Bridge because the percent for art policy applies. And they said they'd have more information in 2019. We are now here in 2021, and it doesn't seem to be the case that there's any more information. But we looked at Ken Lum's website, and we found a hidden page for the buffalo and the buffalo fur trader. So this is the art that he designed and and actually produced for the Walterdale Bridge. And if you check the show notes here, you can see pictures that we will have tweeted, hopefully, before it comes down off the website. Who knows? It's, you know, a pretty aptly described piece. There's two statues, one of a buffalo and one of a person. Or is it a bison? It's hard to know. What's the difference? Well, it's called the buffalo, so I'm gathering it's a buffalo. Yeah, solid input there. That's why you're (laughs) master journalist here. But if you read the blurb on Ken Lum's website, he goes in and explains that This work has been sitting in an outdoor storage in Edmonton since 2016. Quote, the city has expressed worries that First Nations and Indigenous voices today would object to this work and read it as colonialist, despite my intentions. Open parentheses, it had gone through numerous engagements with First Nations and Indigenous groups in 2013 and 2014, which the Edmonton's Art Council acknowledges. And parentheses, end quote. So I thought that was really fascinating because one, we've had this piece done for five years now and I've never heard of it. But two, that it seems to be tied up in a very topical discussion right now about art, murals, reconciliation, and what role each of those plays. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we were talking before the show that perhaps the city was maybe ahead of its time in thinking that there might be some angry tweets about this or that people might interpret it poorly. But it's kind of surprising that, you know, this art did go through these Indigenous engagements, uh, according to the artist himself. There was input on this. This bridge has had all kinds of challenges along the way, project-wise, but also because of the location in which it's built. I mean, the Rossdale Flats are a very historic part of our city and the, the sort of foundation of civilization here. Indigenous people have been here for thousands of years before we ever came along and built a bridge. And so it's interesting that they decided the art would be the controversial part of this project rather than you know, all of the things that happened with the location where they built the bridge. This ties into some of our premier's discussions about cancel culture. Cancel culture is not real, guys, but, you know, let's engage in the hypothetical. Could these statues potentially be a teaching experience? Could it be, rather than right. presenting, you know, sort of a colonialist narrative, you know, a good way to explain away the issue? And Part of me likes to think that, but the other part of me knows that, like you said, this Walterdale Bridge is on a pretty sacred area that is Indigenous burial grounds, and the plaque talking about that is really hidden away. I don't think we did a phenomenal job surfacing that in this tentpole project. So, you know, it comes out as a wash. I mean, the artist himself in the little description says that the work makes explicit the continuing condition of coloniality that exists today. So I think we're supposed to read from that that he would like to see this displayed here and for that conversation to be had rather than for these things to be sitting away somewhere because someone's afraid to have that important conversation. Like you said, the last update we heard about this art was in 2019 and it never really explicitly mentioned this art nor that the art was in storage. So this seems to me another 
point uh, on this timeline of us talking about public art and just raising more questions than we have answers. You've been doing some work this week on getting us some of those actual answers we're looking for, though, right? That's right. Yeah, we're continuing to look into the Percent for Art program to really understand both where it seems to have gone wrong somewhere along the way and also what might be done about it. Um, we mentioned that the Arts Council had told us and they subsequently confirmed in follow-up statements that they're working on this review for the pub percent for art policy. You know, we've learned now that since it was adopted in 1991, it's been amended a couple of times, uh, most notably in 2007 when there was a cap that was removed. So prior to that, the most that could be allocated for art was $100,000. They removed that in 2007, which paved the way for things like the Talus Dome. Um, but the thread throughout all of those amendments is that the qualification criteria has been pretty vague. It's lacked clarity. And so the folks at the city who are charged with deciding how much of the budget for this project is going to go to art have to do that without a lot of guidelines. I think the popular public opinion is that when we build a bridge or we build an arena, 1% of that budget goes to public art. And that's not true. It's 1% of the budget that some city bureaucrats somewhere, for some reason, decide is eligible. And there's no accountability on any of that. So it's really interesting to think about maybe how much public art we've missed out on as a city because of the, the lack of clarity in this policy. How much public art did we miss out on the Valley Line expansion, a $1.8 billion project? Right. I mean, if you do the math, what is it like 0.0019% or something is what is being spent on public art of that overall budget. And you know, the argument from the city is that, well, not all of that is eligible. Tracks, the, the rails, those things don't qualify as part of the budget. It's got to be this highly visible to the public bit of art. And it's really interesting that the policy specifies like the number of hours a day that something must be visible to the public in order for it to qualify, but doesn't give any guidance around how to decide which parts of the budget qualify. Uh, it's kind of fascinating. So, I mean, this update is going to come back hopefully in the fall. And um, the last time that there was a, an update that came forward, it was delayed because of city plan and because of the connections and exchanges plan. But one of the core recommendations in 2017 was a better definition of what projects qualify and how the percent for art is calculated. So any update going forward really must address that question and must make it more explicit what parts of these budgets are eligible for art. And it should be clear to the public how much we're spending or not spending on public art. Depending on who you ask, they must love and hate this policy. Because, you know, if I'm a branch manager at the top of the totem pole and I have this leeway where the policy says basically do whatever you want, but here's a bunch of language describing how you're able to do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, that aligns with what I want to do because I can do whatever I want. As the lower level bureaucrat, this seems like the worst kind of red tape. The ones where there's this policy, it's complex, there's a bunch of different procedures that are at some points are contradictory. And if someone asks you a question about it, you can't answer. Yeah, I would add one other thought on the perspective. If you're a city councilor and your intention, your direction through policy is that we should have a percent of all of our municipal spending on infrastructure set aside for art, it's pretty clear that that intention is not being executed the way that it's currently implemented. Well, and we had mentioned before, even the tent pole, when people think of the percent for art project, they think of the Talus Dome and the Quinell Bridge rehab. The Talus Dome is not 1% of the Quinell Bridge project. Right. Right from the start, this has been a failed project. 
I'll say one thing, and we'll jump back to uh, Ken Lum's art, because, you know, I'm not an artist. I am not an indigenous person either. But if we wanted to solve all of these problems, this is just one humble guy's opinion. You could drop the statue of the person and just make another statue of the buffalo. Make it the buffalo and the buffalo. Put one on each side. It's a really nice buffalo. I like the buffalo. That's the <laughs> thesis statement here. <laughs> or we could just put them both up. I think that'd be okay too. A piece of art might be coming down pretty soon. The oft-talked-about mural. Yeah, mural is the right word. In Grandin Station, which also might not be called that for very long either. Don Iveson has signaled his intention to put forward a motion to immediately cover up the residential school portion of the Grandin Memorial with some orange as we wait for the Grandin Working Circle to develop recommendations and a game plan for how we deal with the Grandin Station at large. Yeah, this is, of course, in response to the discovery of 215 children's bodies in an unmarked grave at that Kamloops Indian Residential School site. Uh, there's been calls for all kinds of change uh, as a result of this and for further investigation into those residential school sites and p other potential uh, graves. And Grandin, of course, is one of the names that people are calling for the removal of. So Bishop Vital Justin Grandin lobbied the government to fund residential schools and was a supporter of the residential school system is what Mayor Iveson says in his statement. And so that's one of the reasons that people are unhappy about that. Just down the road from the LRT station, Grandin Fish and Chips, popular restaurant on 109th Street, has announced that it's committed to changing its name. Uh, the restaurant basically said they didn't do any due diligence when they first named the restaurant. It's just in the Grandin neighborhood. The station's called Grandin. It made sense to call it Grandin Fish and Chips. But they will be changing the name of the restaurant as well. The mural is really interesting in this, right? Because the mural has previously been criticized. And current city councillor, Aaron Paquette, had a hand in crafting the art opposing the mural that is inside the LRT station. Yeah, it's a really fascinating history because it's often brought up as, you know, this stark example of lack of indigenous consultation and only telling one side of the story. But in fact, Aaron Paquette, current city's counselor, he went in and he painted, uh, I think a response is the correct way to call it. Yes. Maybe yeah. a counterpoint. Uh, he extended the idea of the mural to tell all sides of the story, to keep it as a piece that does exactly what we're talking about, tells the whole story. And now he went on a long tweet thread this week, talking about you know, the station name, changes that need to be made, his work in the past. And he's very much on the board that whatever the working circle comes up with, he's 100% on board. But he wants the working circle to do the work and actually make recommendations that make sense for the communities affected by this. Yeah, he says, will everyone agree? Impossible, but it will be thoughtful. And he's putting his faith in that working circle to uh, to really give it the thought that it needs to come up with the recommendations that council can take forward. One place the city has been hearing from people across the board, myself included, I've sent many an email about this, is about our public trees. And I've oft lamented in the past that we really don't have enough protections for our trees. I love living in Edmonton. I chose to live in a mature neighborhood because, you know, the tree tunnel I get in summer with the mature elms, phenomenal. But when you actually look at my neighborhood, the majority of the trees in my neighborhood are on private land. And I dealt with this recently. My neighbors, great neighbors, I'm not going to, if you're listening to the podcast, 
love you guys. It's fine. But they just recently did a redevelopment. They expanded on their house. And in the process, they cut down this gorgeous tree to build a garage. And suddenly, the back corner of my yard, which previously had this really dense forest cover, had nothing. And it really codified in that moment that our urban canopy, if we don't do anything to protect it, it's really fleeting things. So I'm really excited about this public tree bylaw, but it's not actually a bylaw yet, Mac. What's the status on this thing? Well, it's not a bylaw yet, and it also won't protect the tree that you just described if it's on private property. So this is a very baby step toward uh, doing something to preserve these trees. So first of all, the numbers to me are just mind-boggling. So the urban forest contains approximately 380,000 boulevard and open space trees. There's a lot of boulevard trees. And the mature ones, so these are the older ones that have a diameter of at least 40 centimeters and a height of 1.2 meters are 15% of that amount, that number. And just the mature trees alone are estimated to be worth over $900 million. Like it's pretty incredible to me that these trees are worth so much. They obviously provide incredible benefits to our, our ecosystem, not just the shade that you enjoy, but you know also uh, for fighting climate change, really. So this public tree bylaw that came forward a couple of weeks ago, is intended to protect those boulevard trees primarily. Uh, There are some reactive ways that the city can currently uh, do something about damage to these trees. And what they want to be able to do is have a bylaw in place that can allow them to proactively protect these trees. So if you're doing construction work or development work anywhere near a boulevard tree, you would have to get a permit. Um, There'd be a fine for violations. There'd be a fee for these permits. And that's where this item ran into challenges at committee. EPCOR was one of the organizations that spoke about this and said, if they did approve this permit process, there would be 8,000 permits and it would cost thousands of dollars a year for all of the different work they do near boulevard trees. And, And I would say, and? So? When you drive over the grassy boulevard between two trees, you're compacting the roots, you're damaging those trees, and, you know, you can cause that tree to die. So when EPCOR trucks do it, and I've seen it before, this would help. EPCOR, not solely responsible for this. Contractors do it constantly. People moving do it constantly. But if there was actual rules and regulations to protect this and they were enforceable, that'd be a great first step. I lamented earlier, you know, my private property trees, and that's the goal to protect it. But when I've had discussions with counselors about this, inevitably the discussion is like, it's private property, it's tough, but also we can't even protect our public property trees right now. So that's why I'm really excited about taking the first step to do basically anything to protect our urban forest. Yeah. So what the committee decided to do was go forward, but directed administration to go and talk to EPCOR and anybody else who was upset about this to try to figure out a way to make this policy and this permits come forward in a way that everybody can agree on. It's expected to come back in August and it could be uh, approved then. I thought it was interesting when I was reading about this that there are cities in Canada, Toronto, Ottawa, Richmond, that do have bylaws in place to protect mature trees, uh, even on private property. So it can be done. It has been done in other places. And if we can get this first step taken care of, perhaps there's hope in the future. Before someone gets in my DMs and says, that apple tree in my backyard was a nuisance. I hated cleaning up my apples every year and I deserve to be able to cut it down. Fine. But you could also... There's an organization for that. You can call Operation Fruit Rescue and they'll take care of that for you. 
not to have a theoretical straw man debate with my listener. I, I care about you, listener. Just, you know, go out, enjoy the trees. It's summer. Yeah. You know, if we don't move forward on this, they'll all be gone soon. So wouldn't that be sad? We might hear more about it in August. Like everything, there's always that little question mark of, do we make a decision about that in August or do we wait for the thing that's coming up? And it's on the back of everyone's mind, you know, do we make this decision now or do we let the next council decide? Because there's an election coming up. And boy, wouldn't you know it because... Earlier than I've ever seen, signs are popping up. Yeah, there are signs everywhere. People have launched their campaigns to get a sign. I've had conversations with people this week and they close with, so could do you want to sign up for a sign? And I'm like, no. Uh, but there are a lot of signs up already. Uh, sign, what's the word? Proliferation? Yeah, proliferation. It looks like somebody threw up all over the boulevards. I mean, there's signs <laughs> all over the place at certain points. But this is, as you say, a little bit earlier than usual. Yeah. Interestingly, um, Andrew Knack, a counselor running in Ward Nakota Isga, um, he doesn't like signs on public property. Um, and every year, he, every election year, he gets a vehicle wrap with his big face all yeah. over it. And that, the Knackmobile, has popped up again this week. The sign that's been catching my eye the most and been throwing me off the most is Cheryl Watson. And we've talked about her on the podcast before, former Innovate Edmonton, now mayoral candidate. And her signs aren't rectangular. Which is really interesting because I imagine that's got to cost more. And also, why not? Basically, the signs, they're like a half parallelogram. They, you know, go up one side and then have a sharp cut down on the other side. And like on the internet, when I saw the tweet, I'm like, that's a fine looking sign. Hmm. In person, um, not actually such a fan. And I think go out in your communities. Uh, if you can spot one, uh, enjoy the ride. But I think part of it is even worse sign proliferation is coming up this election. Normally, you know, we have a municipal election. There's candidate signs everywhere. There's some mayor signs. If you get someone that really cares, there's a trustee sign somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but no one cares about the school board. Sorry. But <laughs> this year, we have a provincial government that's gone into overdrive. There's protect our parks, protect public waters, don't defund universities. All these signs for provincial issues, which I've really never seen to this extent before. So many signs. They're appearing beside candidate signs. So Watson signs definitely looking a little bit out of place beside a bunch of rectangular signs. But I wonder if this election, we're going to be lost in even, even more noise. And what if there's signs for a referendum issue? That's yeah. that's just the ball game. I drove through your neighborhood this past week, actually, Troy, going to uh, pick up some baked goods from the local bakery. And I noticed that exactly what you're talking about. There's a lot of signs that have nothing to do with the municipal election up already on uh, people's lawns and people's yards. So that is really interesting. It's going to add to the noise. You said Watson sign looks out of place. Maybe that's by design. I mean, it's very consistent with her uh, slanted branding. She's got this slanted pink line in a lot of her branding. But also, if it's the only non-rectangular sign, maybe it draws your attention. You know, I'm not a marketing expert, but could work. Could work. We shall see. My lawn itself, the Sohi sign came. Uh, you know, I'm unabashed. Mac can be the journalistic impartiality thing. I'm voting for Sohi. When the Sohi sign arrived this week, because I signed up, I was like, you know... Part of me thought about going up there and just taking it down and just like putting it up closer to the election Mm because I don't feel great about having a sign. 
but then there's a nickel sign down the street so i'm like <laughs> okay fight someone, me guy someone needs to counter that elections are full of counter narratives and misinformation uh, talking about nickel here but taproot you're a journalist organization what are you guys doing to keep people appraised of the election as it goes forward well the main thing we're going to do of course is follow up on the people's agenda and uh, start producing regular stories that explore those issues help people understand them better and eventually leads to a voter guide that will help you as a voter understand where your candidates uh, stand on all of these important issues and the things that they've said about them. Until we get to that point, we've launched a new thing in The Pulse. This is our weekday news briefing called uh, Municipal Election Rundown. So every single week, we're going to, on Thursday, we're going to be collecting and publishing the news of the week, what is happening in the election campaign. I don't know if it was in there this week, but we'll make sure the Mobile is in there next week. This is a place for you to keep up to date on what's happening, and we'll try to do our best to filter it to the most important items for you. We don't really want to cover this election like a horse race, but it is useful to pay attention over time because you get to spot those trends and things that you wouldn't otherwise see. Well, that's great. I'm looking forward to reading that in my The Pulse every day. It's not every day that I have this gripe, but I'll be honest, it's most days. From my house in Hazeldean, sometimes I want to go to Sherwood Park and I want to go to the south end of Sherwood Park, right up by Y Road at the end, at the intersection with Clover Bar. And you know, it's a straight shot from my house. I can take 76 Ave. It's a nice leisurely ride through Edmonton. It's a nice ride through Sherwood Park. There's bike paths on the side of Y Road. Except there's a little thing called the Anthony Hende. It's mm. this 600 meter gutter between that makes it impossible to safely take that route. So instead, I have to detour up through the River Valley, the Science Provincial Park. It ends up taking an additional half hour of additional riding time to get where I want to go. And all because we didn't put 600 meters of multi-use trail when we were building this $4 billion roadway. Right. And that's why I was really excited this week when I heard that the Edmonton Metropolitan Region Board had just the proposal for me. They have discussed very recently, a few weeks ago, the final draft of something called the Integrated Regional Transportation Master Plan. So there was a task force that was set up to work on this, and the final draft is now under review it includes four objectives for transportation to help uh, as the region's population grows. And a key one of those objectives is that there should be more cycling and pedestrian infrastructure in small and rural areas and between municipalities. Good job, guys. That's all I'm going to say. You know what? You get a very uncynical thumbs up speaking municipally anti-knob of the week award for you. The other thumbs up from speaking municipally goes to our sponsors who pay for us to do this thing every week. This episode is brought to you by ATB. Oh boy, it's been a long time since we've talked about ATB. They used to sponsor the podcast network, you know, but we don't get to say their name as much anymore, except in this ad. And ATB makes banking work for you. With expert and practical advice in everyday banking and investment planning expertise and management services with ATB Wealth, you can be confident that you're making smart choices when it comes to your money. ATB has a history of doing what's right for its clients, especially when times are tough, because ATB was built to help Albertans. For more information, visit atb.com. And that's it for this week. We look forward to talking more about public art for the next several years, because this is what we do now. Yeah, it's a public art podcast. Yeah, This is what the podcast is. This is, in fact, what it is. That's a that's a Edmonton podcast joke. For the three of you that got it, <laughs> oh, you're laughing. 
Karen's going to love that one. <laughs> Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. A note from Troy in the edit bay here. Turns out we didn't talk about the Elks at all in this episode, despite the title. Whoops. See you next week. <laughs>